I heard earlier you're pretty excited about Christmas, most of you. All right, true confession, sometimes I'm a little bit of a Grinch. Do we have any others out there? Okay, I thought I was alone, so feel a little more comfortable already. Just a little bit. I think it's because in church ministry for so many years, Christmas season is a ton of work. Uh, it's just, it's like the Super Bowl season, right? But, you know, something about the season, um, there's so much, oftentimes, so much joy and cheer and family. And uh, with some of you are like, sometimes that's not joy and cheer. Some of you are like, you're like, sometimes that's a little hard. But anyway, there's family for, for better or for worse, right? Usually for better. There's, there's all sorts of busyness, all sorts of festivities, and, and in the midst of all that, I think something that we're all aware of and we all experience, but we're not always like, we don't always think about it, is every year during the season, there's also this reminder of several things. And one of those is our inability to hold on to happiness. Have you noticed that? I mean, all you got to do is watch your kids the day after Christmas. You remember, I mean, we've all experienced it. You remember having that thing you wanted and you weren't sure if grandpa and grandma were going to get it for you, but they ponied up because that's grandparents. You're so generous, right? You, you, you overdo it all the time. You overpay our kids, which is a little hard because then when we try to hire them for jobs around the house, they're like, eh, you don't pay as much as grandpa. Um, <laughs> but then you, they got that thing, you got that thing, and then you all remember the feeling of waking up the day after, and realizing that anticipation, that joy, that happiness that you thought it would bring, um, there's this hole in your heart, right? And I watch this with my kids as, as they work hard and save to get something, and they get it, and that's fun, and then, then almost the next day, it's a new thing, right? And I think as we grow up, that just becomes, you know, the toys just get bigger and more expensive, the vacations get more extravagant. It, you know, it just shifts to different things, right? It sh shifts to the promotion or the next income level or all these different things that we think if we could just get there or it's a relationship, you know, you're single and you're thinking if I can, if I can just get into a relationship or you're married and you think if I can just have kids and those with kids are like, yeah, that'll do it for you. Uh, <laughs> but this is the feeling that we all have, isn't it? We work so hard around here leading up to Christmas and then me after Christmas every year, it's like, Oh, now it's just cold. And some of you are like, yeah, but it's ski season. Okay, but March is coming, and that melts away, and then you have mud season, right? Uh, I, I think it's funny on this kind of this idea of the things you hope for. Um, anybody remember the movie Frozen? And there's that snowman. Uh, I had to ask. I couldn't remember his name. Olaf, remember him? Uh, yeah. Olaf, it's funny, my, uh, if, if guys are like, why is, or, you know, you can turn in your man cards, you're talking about the movie Frozen. I had a two-year-old daughter that watched it obsessively over and over and over again uh, when it first came out. And I had the cutest little video. She was in the, in the bath, taking her bath, just belting out, let it go. Like, Olaf Key is so cute. Um, we have that on video. We'll show it at her wedding someday. But the funny thing I think about like that Olaf, the, the snowman, is he's always, what is he always longing for and anticipating? Summer. See, I know the movie well. Summer. <clears throat> and then what happens? He, he finally experiences summer, and he starts melting everywhere, right? 
And I think that's an experience that we all kind of at, at a deep level can identify with of getting what you want and realizing you can't hold on to happy, happiness. And sometimes the season reminds us of that. Sometimes it reminds us of this sort of acute awareness of loss. For some, that's been a relationship. For some, that's a loved one that's no longer with you, either because of a broken relationship or because of death or loneliness. Just like this season just illustrates the fact that, that there's this unmet thing in your life and, and, and you're lonely, right? And for so many, like every year, we, we do one of two things. Either like repeat the cycle of, well, if I could just, you know, and if this works out right, and if I could just get this, especially New Year's resolutions, right, coming. And some of you, you're so driven, you're so type A, you're already planning your New Year's resolutions, and you're excited because the New Year's starting and it's a new chance you know, to accomplish something and take it to the next level. And you tried, and you've done that, and actually you've accomplished a lot, but there's still this, this hole. There's this thing inside. So you just, like, repeat the cycle of thinking, if I can just get the next thing, if this holiday would be this. If, or you descend, you, you kind of check out because you've realized that doesn't do it, and so you kind of put up a wall. You turn into a Grinch, you push people away. You decide it's not worth making any resolutions. Got to admit, that's me some years, right? All those kinds of things, right? And because there's this thing that we think is going to give us that thing that, that, that's going to fill that place that's empty in our heart. And what we discover is uh, whatever that thing we thought would do, it doesn't do it, right? Now, there's one word that I think is at the heart of this season that we're entering into. And that is what we, we decided to call this series Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And I thought this year, instead of heading into a diff- different passages of Scripture for the Advent season, um, I wanted to just stay in John because the chapter we've come to illustrates the truth of Emmanuel, of God with us in a profound way. And, and as... As well known as John 3.16 that we looked at last month is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's, it's the next verse that I think, think so profoundly illustrates this idea of God with us. And we're going to see that in John chapter 4. And that's this verse. It's, it's the verse after John 3.16, I think that really like leads us into this. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And there's this profound truth that we're going to see at the heart of, of Emmanuel, of God with us, is the truth that, that God is with us, but he's not just with us, he's for us. The truth of overwhelming grace, a grace that's freely offered to us not something that's earned, but something that's freely offered, and of peace and of hope in the midst of life circumstances. And that's what we're going to see so clearly in John chapter 4. And if you want to follow along, you can turn in your Bibles over to John chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in John chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what it says. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. 
Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. And so he came down to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, and when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, here's what you need to like realize from this, from this uh, just the, the opening of this chapter, from this, this account that we're about ready to see. This is a highly unusual situation. You don't necessarily get that unless you know some of the backstory. Because number one, it says he had to go through Samaria. Here, and, and here's the issue with that. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, almost all of the Jews didn't go through Samaria in this day. Because they hated and they despised the Samaritans. They would take an extra, I don't know, 10 hours or so just to walk around this region. They would add a whole long distance to, to the journey, right? So, he, so, so when it says he had to, there was something different that was compelling him. I think it was the Holy Spirit because he was about ready to set up this incredible meeting that we're going to see. But he went through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. You see, the, the word Samaritan um, in Jesus' time was actually used as a curse word. They despised these people. And just so you know why, um, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded Israel. There, there were two kingdoms, you know, the northern kingdom, ten tribes, the southern kingdom with a couple tribes down there called Judah, right? And they took most of the population of Israel, the northern kingdom, away into exile and never to return, actually. Um, but then they brought their own people in to sort of bring some people to repopulate that area. And they intermarried with the remaining few that were there. And those people became the Samaritans, now, when, when the remnant of Judah would come back to Israel after they were hauled into exile, when they came back, the Samaritans actually now opposed them and tried to stop the work of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And these Samaritans actually claimed to be the true descendants of Abraham. And so there was all this rivalry, and there's, there were wars that were fought over the centuries. If you know anything about the Middle East, um, you know, our country's only, what, almost 250 years old or so. Um, they have memories that go back thousands of years. It really, you, you got to understand that if you want to understand some of the tension that, that happens in the, in the Middle East, right? The lo very long memories. And so there's just this ongoing just hatred between these, these people groups. In fact, you know, it's interesting, the word Samaritan. Now, what do you think of when you hear Samaritan? The good Samaritan, right? You think of, I mean, there's, you know, major ministries that have the word Samaritan. It's like a great word for us, isn't it? It wasn't a great word then, right? But it's because of Jesus, because of, of what he told, actually, one of his most famous parables is about the Good Samaritan. And the reason why it was so shocking in the time is because he made the bad guy the good guy, right? And so that's why it was so shocking in the time. So it's highly unusual. Number one, he goes through Samaria uh, because they, they just wouldn't do that, right? And then number two, he's tired. We don't often think of Jesus in this way, do you? See, we have this very, I don't know, 
pastels, you know, if you watch Jesus movies, like almost like Jesus floats through life, right? His blonde hair waving in the wind, blue eyes piercing, like every good Jewish boy. But here you see, actually, it's so interesting because John's gospel, um, more than the other accounts of the life of Jesus, actually really illustrate and drive home the divinity of Jesus. But he doesn't hesitate to show us his humanity, too. And he's tired. And see, part of Emmanuel, part of God with us, is he understands our weakness. He understands how hard it is to do life. And you just get this picture of Jesus Walking up at midday up to this, uh, this, it's about noon, right? They're walking up to this well, and it's hot, and he's got sweat dripping off his, his brow, and he just sits down, and he's like, gosh, I'm tired. You guys go find us something to eat. Not a Jesus kind of picture of Jesus we often think of, but the author of Hebrews tells us actually, like, like part of why this is so important, he says, Jesus he is, is our high priest, our, me- our mediator between us and God, right? And he's on your side. He's for us. It says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. He's like, I get it. I know how hard it is. The thing you keep struggling with, yeah, I I, I get the temptation. Now, being God in the flesh, he didn't succumb. He didn't fall to sin. And yet, he understands. He gets it. He knows, and he's for you. And then the the third thing that's so weird here is, number one, he goes through Samaria. We see his weakness, and then he speaks to not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman, which was also very unusual. And, And not only does he speak to her, he asks her for help. And next week, we're gonna, I wanna tease out a little more why this is so important, but I think we view weakness and need as a detractor oftentimes. And we have such an ethos in our culture of being the strong one who never needs to ask for anyone. And I think many times, actually, that keeps us from forming relationships. And Jesus does something very profound here. Many times, actually, the fact that we have a need and we're willing to to allow someone else to help us is the thing that he uses to invite into relationship to invite somebody else into a relationship. And so he, he pauses, he speaks to a Samaritan woman, which in this day and age, a rabbi, somebody, a, a, a religious person, typically in this, this age, men, you know, women would come to the well to draw water, typically in the morning or in the afternoon or in the early evening. And you just kind of, men didn't speak to women out in public in this, in this culture in this day and age, especially if you were alone. And if you, especially if you were a religious leader. And so this woman responds, like, kind of shocked by this whole thing. She, she recognizes how crazy this situation is. And it says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Two strikes. Samaritan and woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's shocked. And then also what we're going to find out is she knows things about herself that she's glad Jesus doesn't know, but if he knew, 
she would be doubly shocked. And so she, she kind of recoils against this in surprise and in suspicion. Um, I, I think there's this thing going on as, as the story unfolds. I think she's used to being taken advantage of. And she, she responds, as so many would, sort of with, by pushing away. But Jesus, he leans in. And, and I love this right here. He, he's not put off. She's trying to put a, drive a wedge, like pointing out the differences, pointing out, hey, you and I don't have anything in common. What are you talking to me for, right? Verse 10, Jesus answered her. It says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And Jesus just takes the conversation uh, to a new level. And he begins to speak of deeper things of the heart. She doesn't understand it yet. In fact, it's interesting because Jesus uses this phrase, living water, which was kind of a common phrase in the time. It, it would talk about like a fresh stream or clear running water. In fact, it was the only water that they were allowed to use for ritual purification purposes, which will be really interesting here in just a minute. But Jesus, he's talking about something deeper. He's, um, as, as one scholar says, he's referring to the new life that he's offering to anyone. Anyone at all, no matter what their gender, their geography, their racial or moral background. He's offering a living water that actually cleanses not just the body, but the heart and the soul. In verse 11, the woman who doesn't quite get it yet. In fact, this is what you see in all the conversations with Jesus. You remember Nicodemus a, a few weeks ago, and he just didn't get it. Like, it just threw him off, like, be born again? What? You got to kind of crawl up into the womb? Oh, that's kind of weird, right? He's couldn't, he couldn't quite wrap his mind around it. And this woman, she says, sir, the woman asked, you have nothing to draw with. They would bring their own bucket and rope and kind of something to draw water out of the well with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I'm kind of from around here. If you know anything about they they know where Jacob's well, this spot is. And uh, you can still go there and visit, although it's in the West Bank. Um, so bring your flak jacket, you know, and make sure you got a good tour guide. Um, but... They know where this, this, this spot is. And uh, there's no streams around there. So she's like, uh, do you know something I don't know? Right? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So, so here, she, she brings up this point. This is a really significant place in history, in faith. I mean, actually, this is a very significant place, this, this area around Jacob's well. And it's an area where God promises the land to Abraham, where Abraham actually makes his first sacrifice to God, where Isaac, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith, right? Where Isaac's servant goes out and meets Isaac's future wife. Where Jacob meets his future wife. And all the singles are like, I'll sign up. How do I sign up for that tour of the Middle East, right? It's this really, I mean, it's a very significant place of destiny and of calling. And it's a very significant physical location. 
But Jesus is doing something here as he's done like with the water pots at Cana and the different things. And you can go about and listen to that. He's, he's saying as significant as these symbols and as these locations and places are, there's something more significant. The point is that there's the, the new water, the living water is here. And as significant as this historic religious place is, the better thing is here. The living water is here. You are in a place where you are now and you don't even know it. You're encountering Emmanuel, God, with us. And so Jesus answers in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Like, okay, let me go deeper here. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, here's what I know. Whatever well you go to to find your life, to find your significance, to find your meaning, to find your fulfillment, to try to fill that hole in, in your soul, you got to keep going, don't you? Back again and again and again. And see, and the painful thing when it comes to like addiction and different things is it's, it's almost always a, an increasing thing, right? Again and again and more and more, you need to fill that hole whatever that thing is. And Jesus says, hey, there's something deeper. There's a deeper place to find significance and meaning. There's a place that can actually fill that hole in your soul, and it will actually become inside of you a spring of of water welling up to life. And isn't that what we long for? Like true life at at a deep level, at a soul level, for that thing that's, that's missing, to find that significance, that meaning, that joy that doesn't just disappear the next day. The woman, she still, I think at this point she senses there's something deeper going on, but she, but she still, she's not quite there yet. And, and she says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. As we're going to find out in just a second, there's a deep, deep hole in this woman's soul. And here Jesus is speaking of this eternal life, of this deeper significance, trying to draw her into something deeper. But because of her pain, she just can't get past how hard her life is right now. And see, I think this is the place where so many are in. And Jesus is, this is so significant, right? Because Jesus has has to work in this place in order to get her to the place where she will have living water in her soul. She can't get past how how difficult it is. She's out here at noon in the hot sun alone, thinking of how she has to come out here, how hard it is, how lonely it is. And see, there's a reason she's out here at noon alone. And we're going to find that out in just a minute. There's a reason, like, when most women will come to the well in the morning or in the, in the evening, and it, it was a place of community and fellowship and town gossip and all that stuff. That's where it happened. But she's not there. There's a specific reason why she's, she wants to be out there alone, because she's experienced the hurt and the pain 
and the gossip and the slander and all these things that came from being in community. And so she's pushed that away. And, and here's the thing Jesus knows is he has to actually go to the source of that pain and that wound and that hardship in her life in order to get her to the living water. In order for her to embrace the thing that God had for her. Verse 16, in fact, this is kind of a shocking thing. I mean, this is a response like, give me the living water. In, a, in evangelism, this is a successful little conversation, right? And then Jesus takes a left turn with it. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, can we just say, awkward. <laughs> like, talk about taking a conversation and making it awkward right away. Jesus, what he does here is he actually presses into her wound. He knows there's a wound in her heart. Some of it she may have caused, some of it may have been caused to her, but there is a wound to her heart. And in order to get her to the place where she experiences the life that Jesus has, you got to go through the wound. Such a profound principle. In fact, um, John Eldridge is in his book, Wild at Heart. And if, guys, if you haven't read it, you should read it. This book has impacted literally millions of, of men around this world. Here's what he says about, about our hearts. And this doesn't just apply to men. This applies to women as well. It says this, every man carries a wound. I have never met a man without one. No matter how good your life may have seemed to you, you live in a broken world full of broken people. Your mother and father, no matter how wonderful, could not have been perfect. She is a daughter of Eve. He, a son of Adam. So there is no crossing through this country without taking a wound. And here's the point behind this is that our wounds and, and the messages that end up being spoken into our hearts and into our minds because of them, they impact us in a very profound way. They, they play out in our lives in, in lots of different ways. Maybe it's just this underlying, seething sense of anger. Maybe it's perfectionism. It's that thing that drives you every year to have to step it up to the new level. And if you really, like, stop and... and be honest with yourself, there's something deeper driving you towards that. There's something behind that drivenness, that perfectionism. Sometimes it leads to hiding, to pretending. Sometimes it leads to addictions. But the good news is that, that, that the mission of Jesus is about restoration in our lives. See, he, he came to heal your heart and restore you as a son and as a daughter. And bring you into a place of actually knowing his living water, his life. I mean, we all have, you know, no matter how good your upbringing was, man, we, we live in a broken, sinful world, right? 
which I think especially in, you know, parents, I think it's why it's so important to communicate grace to your kids, not just when they do the right thing, but especially when they don't. Like to communicate, hey, I know you're going to blow it big time. We all have. To communicate, I'm here for you. I'm for you. I love you. That's grace. That's the heart of God, right? Do your, do your kids know that they're, that they're truly loved and accepted in spite of their behavior, not because of it? Uh, a famous pastor uh, from Texas named Matt Chandler says this about this idea of the things we hide in our lives. He says, to be 99% known is to be unknown. And see, here's the idea behind that is, is we all have a wound. We all have something in our heart. And because of that, there's so many times there's shame or there's something in our past, a struggle. And, and for so many, there's that thing that if we feel, if we ever bring into the light, if anybody ever finds out about this, if anybody ever knows, oh, I can look really good 95%, 99% of the time, but I, there's this thing here and because of that, the constant lie I tell myself is if, if I'm ever really known, I will not be accepted. I will not be loved. I will not. There, there's not grace for me. Which is why the New Testament is so clear about um, the value of like real cr- Christian community where you be real and you actually share your struggles with people. I mean, this isn't like, you know, don't go on social media and like blast out like, hey, here's my deep, darkest secrets. Probably not a good idea. But to have those trusted people around you, and and some of you, like literally, the best thing you could do is to lean into community. You've been pushing people away, and the reason is because there's this thing that you don't want anybody to find out about, but it's actually you need to be be moving towards community. Maybe it's getting involved in some of the small groups with men's or or women's. We have relationships. Uh, We we want you to have gospel-focused friends that, you know, are on the same track serving Jesus, but we also want you to have some iron sharpens iron relationships where you have one, two, three, four people in your life that you really go deep with, that you're known by. Because see, here's the thing. We think there's no grace, but actually the, the thing is, um, the thing you're struggling with, you think you're alone in that and you're not. And allowing somebody else into that, um, James says, hey, actually, I want you to, to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. See, there's healing that comes. You're not meant to fight battles alone. You're meant to fight as a, as a group. And, and if you can have somebody on your side praying for you, the grace that's there makes a big difference in your life. But what do you do when somebody pokes at your wound, you usually, like, recoil, right? You either push them away or you fight. And this woman uh, is going to try to push Jesus away because he's put his finger on the thing that hurts in her life. And we don't really know the backstory here. We don't know. I mean, it's possible, like, she's been widowed five times and... Which I guess, you know, if you're that fifth guy, I'm just saying. Which I guess could explain number six going, I don't think we're going to actually get married, right? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, no matter, you know, there's some red flags there, no matter how beautiful she is, right? 
Now, I don't think that's it. Actually, I think there's, there's something here that's producing shame, great shame. There's something here that's, that continues to break relationships. We don't know what the wounding was. We don't know what caused it. But whatever it is, she does not want it out in the light. And so she decides to throw a diversion tactic in here. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Understatement, right? <laughs> I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship. So now she takes a left turn and she's going to go into like a theological conversation. Again, trying to drive a wedge of like, hey, these are the things that separate us, right? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's, she's deflecting the conversation. She throws up a hotly debated topic. You know, the Samaritans had rejected all the, all of the Old Testament scriptures except for the first five books. And then they, they changed the stories to make um, all the important events happen on Mount Gerizim, this mountain she's talking about, instead of, you know, all the other uh, kind, of, kind of places. And because of that, they had this rivalry, right? And so she throws up, hey, you believe this, we believe this. Um, you know, we're different. There's a wedge between us. Let, this should cut the conversation off, Right? And see, here's something I've observed about people. Um, typically, maybe this is your story. Maybe this is somebody in your family's story. And if this is your story, I'm just glad you're here. Investigating, going deeper. And, and, or maybe for some of you, like just giving God, like saying, God, I'm, I'm going to give this one more chance, right? But most people don't wake up one day and just decide not to believe. It usually doesn't happen that way. Usually, usually there's, there's a choice in their life that leads to a bad outcome and then another one and another one. And before they know it, their life winds up in a place where sin has separated, you know, in their heart, they've pushed God away. And there's this cognitive dissonance where I can't reconcile where my life has ended up with what I know about what I feel like God's calling me to live. And because of that, um, so many people, the place they go in their mind is throwing up excuses for why God must not be exist or why he must not be active or present or, you know, maybe he's this deistic sort of thing where he's out there and wound it all up, but he's not really involved in life. He doesn't really care. He's not present. This is so many people's story. In fact, there's this pattern that you see where, where people go in their life, they have a disappointment in their life, a major heartache, a major tragedy, and they go from being disappointed because God somehow allowed this into the life, and it leads to being disillusioned with God. Some of you, you're there right now, where you're just like, I, I don't know, like, maybe there's a God, but um, I don't really know if he really cares about me. And then that, those, that disillusionment so often leads to doubts, where all of a sudden those arguments that weren't so convincing when you're in high school or college kind of creep back up in your mind, and, and you begin to embrace that. And for so many people, they just detach. And she's kind of there. She's throwing up these, these debates, but the thing isn't the thing. It's something under the thing, right? There's something much deeper. Usually the root is much deeper in people's lives. It's a church hurt. It's a family hurt. It's a tragedy. It's a bad, bad, sinful choice that has led to so much pain. And because of that, they've detached. You've detached. 
And the beauty of this is Jesus wants to bring you through that and bring healing to that place in your life so you can experience the living water that he has. Jesus isn't put off. Verse 21, Jesus replies this woman. Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain. You guys think, you know, okay, you want this to be the conversation? Let me just tell you. A time's coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you the truth here. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're deceived, he says. We worship what we do know, for the salvation is from the Jews. Jesus comes through the line. The redemptive plan of God has come through the people of God, right? And here's what I think is so profound about this. Jesus doesn't avoid the truth. You see this over and over. John 1. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. He does not avoid the truth. He's full of grace and truth. Truth exists. And you know what? Truth is revealed by God. And this is such an important thing in our culture that just says, hey, you have your truth, I have my truth, and really it boils down to whatever you feel about it. Do you really think that's true? I mean, when, when does that start? Like, is your teenager's truth there, right? I mean, seriously, right? You remember being a teenager. Some of you, you're teenagers. We love you. There's just times where you, you know, if you could, if you could decide, you'd blow up different homes or, you know, this continent, right? Come on, that's all of us, isn't it? If truth is subjective to feeling. See, see, our culture is all about relativism, which is like there's not really absolute truth, especially in this age, postmodernism, big word. But there's really not absolute truth. No, truth is actually revealed by God. We don't kind of discover our own truth. That's a, that's a path to deception. Our feelings so oftentimes deceive us. We know that, right? Our feelings so often deceive us. So he addresses her question, but he doesn't stop there. He takes it to a deeper level. Verse 23, he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And this is the good news of God with us. This is the good news of the gospel arise. He says the time is coming. There's soon going to be a time where the issue like, isn't going to be the temple in Jerusalem. That'll be gone. And it's not going to be this mountain either. These places that you've placed so much significance. In fact, the heart of the book of John, what Jesus does over and over, whether it's in John 3 with Nicodemus, you must be born again. Whether it's in John 2 with the water pots or the temple. Hey, I'm telling you, this temple, destroy the temple, speaking, uh, and I'll raise it up in three days, speaking of his, his body. These things you've held as sacred as these are the anchor points of you relating to God. The time is coming and now is here when a new relationship with God is available to you. And it doesn't matter what gender you are, what race you are, what your background's like. Living water is available to you. And you can worship the God by the power of the Holy Spirit who draws you to him and indwells you. In fact, where's the temple of the Holy Spirit now? It's within us, right? The Holy Spirit dwells within us as we come together as a church family 
So he's defining a new relationship with God based on grace. He's with us. Verse 25, the woman tries deflecting one more time. And this is the argument of, well, you can't really, who knows? Who knows what's really true? But someday we'll know, right? The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And I love how Jesus responds here. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Whoever you are in this world, you have to wrestle with this statement. See, as you read through the book of John, what he does not allow you to do is wonder who he is. You have to wrestle with it. Who is Jesus? And if he is who he says he is, what does that mean about the way I live my life, right? Whether I choose to follow him. This is the first of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. And what's so profound about this is he actually, uh, the NIV kind of obscures this when it says, I am he. Literally, the Greek is just, I am. In fact, when they translated the Hebrew scriptures in, from Exodus, where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, I am who I am, in Greek, this is what they translated. That's very significant. That's on purpose. I am. He will go on to say, I am the bread of life. I am the way. But here's what's so profound about what Jesus is saying here. As profound as it is that he uses this phrase, I am. And John, over and over, tells us that he is God in the flesh. That's the meaning of the incarnation. God come down in the flesh. God, the three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the Son, come in the flesh to this world, to live, to die, to rise again for you and for me, to institute and initiate his kingdom. As profound as this is, I think what's so profound about this is the very first of his I am statements was given to a shunned Samaritan woman. The very first of his I am statements was given to this woman who was living in her shame, who was living in her fear. And next week, we're going to see her amazing response to this. But at this point, she hadn't done anything for Jesus. And yet Jesus offers her the gift of living water, grace, unmerited favor. And see, that is the offer of the gospel, and that is what we celebrate during this season. It's the free gift of grace. Emmanuel, God with us. It's that God is for you. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to experience the healing and the life that are available in him. Grace, it's not a result of your past or even of your present. It's just his grace. It's his favor. His, his love and affection for you is not dependent on your discipline. It's not dependent on your maturity. You get that? See, so many times we think, okay, I accepted Jesus, I got salvation, but now I'm going to just work really, really hard to be a good Christian. And you find yourself in this constant 
um, pattern of, of feeling like, hey, I'm doing good. It's the first of the year. Jan- I'm through January, and I'm tracking with my one-year Bible reading. Now, it's a great thing to do. We're going to encourage you. We always encourage you to do that. But not so that you can earn God's love and affection for you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give. I'm going to attend. All these things. Those are good things, wonderful things for your spiritual life. But not so that you can earn his grace or his love or affection. It's not dependent on what you've done for him. It's not dependent on your maturity. There's grace for you, regardless of the fact that there are still habits and things in your life that caused or have come from that wound. There's grace for you, even though your marriage doesn't necessarily reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. There's grace for you. Now, those are things he wants to work in. Like, he wants to bring those things into the light. He wants to bring healing. Um, A phrase, it's okay. We, We ripped this off and made it one of our own phrases. It's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. See, he wants, to, he wants to move you closer to him to bring healing into your life. But let me just tell you, the people that God uses profoundly in the Bible over and over again are broken people like us. They take a long time to mature and to properly apply a scripture. They, they leap in with great, like, commitment and then fail Jesus over and over again. There's grace, not just to get in, but there's grace for the journey with him. Are you walking in his grace, the grace that overcomes that shame? See, the message of the gospel of of God with us is that I know you and I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. So would you stand? As we sing this song, I just want to ask you, um, as we approach this season, as we enter this season, what, what well are you going to over and over again hoping to find life in? Have you asked yourself that question? Because there is a source of true life, and it's only found in him. What wound are you hiding that allows you to constantly push away from God and others? As we sing this, would you just contemplate that? Would you maybe take that before God and ask his grace to move in your life? So that's my prayer for each one here, that they would know the grace that you offer, Lord. And if there's any here that don't know you yet, that have not... um, received that grace for the first time in their life, that they would embrace what you did for them when you died and rose again. They would confess their sin, ask you for forgiveness and eternal life, and then experience that joy that you have for them, Lord. Lord, and for my friends that are still um, just struggling with a different area, would you bring healing into their life? Would you bring courage to get into community? Just your grace for the journey too, Lord. Would they know that this week? We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.